You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. My guests Enrico Franceschini and Anna Rosenberg will discuss the incredible global impact of coronavirus and the day's other news, including a look at how journalists and politicians are doing in responding. Plus, what do we make of nation states? A small region of France still wants to be its own country. And we look ahead to Melbourne Design Week. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Well, welcome to the show. I'm joined by Anna Rosenberg, Head of Europe and the UK at the political consultancy Signum Global and Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. This is very much one of those weeks when it feels like there is only one story. The coronavirus COVID-19 has caused, aside from an accelerating toll of illness, astonishing disruption to normal life, nowhere more so than in Italy. After a sudden surge in COVID-19 infections and deaths yesterday, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte announced measures to lock the country country down still further. All bars, restaurants and similar venues will be closed and all retailers aside from supermarkets and pharmacies will shut as well. Um, Enrico, I'm sure you've been speaking to a lot of people in Italy. In general, how are people bearing up? It is not precedented, not even during the war. But speaking of wars, you know, uh, Italians give their best to their best when the situation becomes dramatic. Uh, we still remember during World War One we were invaded by the Austrian forces uh, on almost uh, uh, on the verge of uh, defeat. And then there was a river, the Piave River, where the Italian troops made the last stand and stopped them. And and this is a, a like a metaphor for our country. So when the... When the uh, situation becomes very difficult, Italians give their best. And I think it's happening right now. It was not like this a month ago or even two weeks ago. People were careless. People were saying, ah, it's another flu. Or young people still go out to bars and restaurants. Now all bars and restaurants are closed by order of the government. But I I see that there is solidarity, that there is uh, uh, discipline, and uh, people are... uh, understanding that we have to do it that together collectively to save the country. Uh, Anna, as we look around the world as various governments, and it's hard to imagine that by the time this is done, it won't be all governments having to make a decision about how to respond to this. We, we are seeing varying responses. In the last few minutes, as I was just uh, discussing with Scott Lucas at the top, we've seen the Republic of Ireland uh, announce the closure of uh, schools, colleges and childcare facilities will be shut at least until the end of the month. Um It's hard to imagine there won't be more of that. And yet here in the UK, so far, at least, we are seeing a remarkably, in the context, relaxed attitude. Um, Do we yet understand completely what factors governments are basing those judgments on? No, I don't think we understand that yet. I think each government is trying to approach it differently. So I think that the Italian government has actually taken a very proactive approach. And it's interesting because previously to this, the Italian government was pretty weak. Um, it was about to fall and the coalition wasn't mm. uh, holding up very well. And it's it's really shown leadership and decisiveness. And as a result, it's now much more strengthened um, in, in the way it is behaving. And it's uh, definitely received a boost in popularity. Here in the UK, I think um, 
basically the plan was to focus on Brexit for pretty much this year and to just talk about that and not suddenly a whole virus epidemic. And it has disrupted the narrative that the UK government wanted to focus on. So I think, quite frankly, that the UK government is somewhat overwhelmed and it's trying to, in a way, act similarly to what we have seen from the US with Donald Trump. It's playing it down for the time being. And I think there will be a time, and we're, we're close to this, where very soon more drastic measures are going to be taken, uh, similar to what we have seen yesterday coming out of the US. Funnily enough, um, the US and the UK have both made this a political thing. Yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, that um, Boris Johnson interviewed a health expert um, mm. In, in Downing Street, and he was basically claiming that the EU reaction is mainly because of populist political pressures in the EU. And in the US, um, Trump is claiming that basically the, the fault for coronavirus cases in the US is because of European Union countries not containing it. So there is an element of politics here. And I think that governments that are pretty strong politically at the moment are reacting in a, in a somewhat more in a more sober way, if you want, versus ones like the US, which are facing elections, are obviously using this as a, as a way to influence the debate, the election debate. Uh, Enrico, a lot of countries will, of course, be looking at Italy already. Certainly other European countries will be looking at Italy as a potential vision of the future two or three weeks from now. Um, and a lot of that is going to depend on how Italians respond to this present extraordinary situation. You were saying earlier that so far, at least, at least once the situation became serious, and I think you're right, I think there's, um, it, it's something I've noticed myself reporting on various things around the world, that as soon as there's an actual real problem, people tend to sober up and become very sensible and very focused, and actually, I think, quite often a lot more generous um, very, very quickly. What's your sense, though, of how patient Italians are going to be with this, if this lasts not just two or three weeks, but two or three months and beyond? Well, that's the problem. I, I heard Boris Johnson saying the other day, the timing is right. And uh, you, if you do it too early, actually, it was his, his chief medical advisor saying, if you do it too early, people will get fatigue. They will be tired. Uh, they will start grumbling. And uh, not only that, uh, you know, the, you have to consider the damage to the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and people can die also of poverty, of being without money or without anything to eat. Uh, and not only of coronavirus. Um, it, is, it is possible. In Italy, we have... Uh, uh, you know, what can help us, in addition to the state or to a good uh, um, public health, is the family, of course, mm. with the uh, enlarged family, not only parents and children, but in Italy, as we know, everybody has an uncle, uh, an aunt, uh, grandparents, uh, and so people... Um, re ready to help if you have material needs that will come up. But I, I have some relatives, a relative of mine, she, she works, uh, is a, she's a hairdresser and uh, she will not receive a, an income anymore. And uh, it's a problem, of course. I mean, Anna, Enrico picks up there, I think, on something quite important. And is that now fundamentally uh, the extraordinarily difficult choice that governments now face? Do you make the drastic decisions which shut down the virus or will hopefully shut down the virus? But how do you weigh those against the potential risks of shutting down the economy? It's that question of is, is, the, is the cure worse than the... Well, literally, is the cure worse than the disease? Uh, yes, that's a very good question. I do think that the cure is going to cause 
massive economic disruptions. We've been saying for a while that we're quite concerned about this causing a global debt crisis, um, especially because the, we don't know how long this is going to last at least a few weeks, more likely a few months, if not longer. The economic disruptions are going to affect everyone from a large company to a small business to, to your you know, hairdresser uh, cousin. Um, so I do think that there are a lot of factors here where we, we, where we are heading towards an, an economic crisis. And quite frankly, it's not going to be easy for governments to hold this because Even though over the next few days we're going to see probably a lot more governments coming out with stimulus measures, at the end of the day, this is a health crisis. Even if a government announces so many billions at one point in time, the markets were very soon are going to discount that and are going to start worrying about the fact again that this is spreading and that we don't yet have a vaccine to stop it. And so ultimately, I don't see this stopping anytime soon. Anna Rosenberg and Enrico Franceschini will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. European Union leaders have condemned Donald Trump's move to impose sweeping new travel restrictions on Europe in an attempt to combat the spread of coronavirus. In a statement, leaders said the coronavirus is a global crisis not limited to any continent, saying cooperation is needed over unilateral action. Trump has said the reason he didn't inform European allies of the ban was because they don't inform Washington when raising tariffs. Mr. Trump's announcement has today rocked global stock markets. Three people have been killed in a rocket attack on a military base in Iraq. U.S. military sources have said an American soldier, an American contractor and a British soldier were killed. The U.K.'s Prime Minister Boris Johnson has described the attack on the base as, quote, deplorable. Constitutional changes allowing Vladimir Putin to run for president again in 2024 have passed through Russia's parliament. This raises the prospect he could clock up over three decades in the Kremlin. Putin has dominated Russia's political landscape for two decades as either president or prime minister. Those are some of the headlines we're following today. Now back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Anna Rosenberg and Enrico Franceschini. Well, let's move along slightly and look at the predicament of the Italian press and other media organisations elsewhere who have to cover what is obviously a huge story, but who ply a trade which very much involves two things becoming increasingly discouraged, i.e. getting out and about and talking to people. Um, Enrico, as a general rule, how are Italian media covering this? We were saying before with Anna, bad news usually sell newspapers, right? And and in at the beginning, there was almost an enjoyment also in the Italian press to say... The, you know, the media it, always loves a good health scare. Yes, exactly. Italy is closed, uh, fear in the north, fear in Rome. Uh, but, but now uh, many newspapers are trying to... Uh, calm things down, not publish, you know, every day in the front page the numbers of how many people are uh, infected and, and uh, um, you know, underlying the fact that many people get better actually mm. quite quickly and uh, and also telling good stories of, uh, as I said before, stories of solidarity, uh, associations who offer to bring food to elderly at home uh, and things like that. So definitely, uh, I mean, uh, newspapers also, journalists also have a heart in the end and a brain, maybe. They understand (laughs) that uh, if everything falls down, 
newspapers will as well. But just to follow that up, though, Enrico, as far as you know, what advice or decisions are is La Republica, to cite an example, making about how to guide journalists in the field? Are, are reporters being told there's places they can't or shouldn't go or things they should or shouldn't do? Well, uh, Because reporters, I guess, also have to bear in mind the fact that if they are going out and meeting lots of people, they are actually potentially a danger to yes, their subject. In fact, uh, I've seen some ad- internal advice about, uh, you know, avoid trips if they are not uh, essential for your job and if they are not authorized by the editor-in-chief and things like that. Also, because this is inevitable because... For me, also, here in London as an Italian journalist, a new question arises when I ask an interview, I want to see someone. The question is, uh, are you Italian? Uh, when was the last time you've been to Italy? <laughs> Which is uh, reasonable. And, you know, the wheels turns. A month ago or two, in Italy, we were asking, oh, this guy is Chinese, stay away from him. Now it's our turn. Uh, There's another media question, though, I think, Anna, which I think is also going to become more important, which is social media and whether there is going to come a point at which governments either have to directly or very much encourage social media platforms to take a grip on what they are being used to transmit, because they are, as always, um, a sink of disinformation and conspiracy theory and wild speculation. But that's usually merely only annoying, but there is a potential for that to become actually dangerous in these circumstances. Of course. I mean, I think it already has, in a way, if you're looking at the supermarket shelves, there are no toilet paper in the UK anymore. And where did this start? In Australia. So Twitter was full with pictures of shelves, empty shelves without toilet papers, and suddenly... We don't have toilet paper in the UK supermarkets anymore. However, that is not going to be solved now. I think that, um, you know, false information on social media has been uh, a thorn in the eyes of many governments and for the European Union for a while. They haven't solved it yet. They're not going to solve it now. But I think we need to look at the positives of social media as well at this point in time, because I do think, especially when people are locked down, it gives a feeling of solidarity. There are things on Twitter trending like uh, a corona, coronavirus challenge and things like that. So people take it with a little bit more humor. And I do think that in an environment where we're all going to probably very soon be locked in our, in our flats and houses, this is going to be a good thing to have rather than a problem. Uh, Enrico, then, from the Italian experience so far, it's another thing that a lot of other European countries in particular are going to be trying to learn from. What has the Italian media got right and not got right so far that might serve as a useful instruction? Hmm. Well, uh, it it got right uh, that... uh of course, uh, this was uh, the main issue for a lot of people. It was a, 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 the number one story. You know, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, with colleagues, we were saying, what are we going to talk now that we don't have Brexit anymore? Well, we found something to talk about. <laughs> and uh, uh, what it got wrong, uh, um, uh, perhaps, uh, is, uh, um, I'd say, that at first, on one end, um, we play the fear factor. Uh, on the other one, uh, people tended to say, "Well, this is not so serious." We and and uh, and it was difficult uh, to uh, find the right voices uh, to trust. You know, because in a situation like this, not only in social media, but you have 
all sorts of experts. We have uh, uh, epidemiologists that uh, say the different things at the same time. And, and we were pointing out, it's funny in Italy, we have two famous people like that. And, and one of them, is, we were saying, he was too busy to tweet. Uh, is what he thinks. Uh, no time to study what uh, what really is going on. Well, finally on today's news panel, a slightly lighter story, which I think both us and our listeners are entitled to. Um, we did start today's briefing with a look at how the United States wants to isolate itself from Europe. Well, one small corner of France, it turns out, is way ahead of it. Uh, the Republic of Les Sorges in the almost certainly mispronounced Haute-Dub region has believed itself semi-seriously to be an independent republic since 1947. Le Sauget has a hereditary president, presently Madame Georgette Bertin-Pouchet, and a flag and a coat of arms. These all seem, and doubtless are, mildly ridiculous affectations for a region of 128 square kilometres, but that is more than twice the size of San Marino, which has a seat at the United Nations. Um, and I'm, I'm quite excited about this story because I'm a big fan of breakaway regions. I have been to several. I am, in fact, an honorary citizen uh, of of one, um, which is the... Um, at the time, I think they were still trying to call it the Republic of Southern Cameroon. I think that has since been refloated as Ambazonia. Um, do you have a particular favourite? I think Andorra is quite a good one. That, that's, that's, that's a kind of an actual country it's an as actual, well, though. It's an actual country, but if you look at it, it's tiny. It's between, you know, France and Spain. It's It has the euro, but it's not part of the European Union, and it's been around for quite a while. So I think I've always been somehow fascinated by it. It seems... I don't know, mysterious to me that uh, we still have these things in Europe and that makes it so diverse. But quite frankly, overall, nation states are inventions of the 19th century, mm. right? So in a way that we've gone from empires to nation states, I don't think they're here forever. They're one stage in history. And so, you know, why not? Let's have more of these smaller regions, <laughs> independent countries. Uh, Enrico, I've, I've been to San Marino. I did a big story on it for Monocle magazine. And in fact, their international football team was playing at home while I was there. And I can tell you that that is a sporting event that won't be much affected by crowd restrictions on football games. They got filled in 9-0 by Norway, uh, I, I think. Um, but how does it, how do Italians think about the existence of this this upstart breakaway republic within your territory because I mean as you know it's basically a hillside with about 70 people living on it I mean well, you and a few of your friends armed with pitchforks could take the place in an it's, afternoon it, it's how do bit, you let them get away with this it's a bit more than 70 maybe it's a few thousands <laughs> don't forget we have another city state in Italy very small smaller than San Marino Indeed Vatican so. City with very power small but, but powerful but they've got, they've got those guys with the, the frilly pantaloons and the halberds, though. Yes, they, they look yes, scrappy. Yes, yes. But, well, San Marino is very much light in Italy because there are no borders. The food is the same as you can have in Rimini, the city of Federico Fellini. It's, so it's, it's very, very, very good, I very can good food. food. And women particularly like it because there are a lot of outlets uh, tax free for clothes of bigger <laughs> firms that are just inside San Marino. So you find a lot of people going there for shopping. And don't they also take part of the Eurovision Song Contest? Yes, yes, there you they, go. they participate yes, in, uh, and in the Olympic Games as well. I, I did speak to a few people. In, well, I spoke to probably about a fifth of the population in the five days I was there. But <laughs> they, they did actually speak about a disadvantage I hadn't previously heard of, which they said traveling with a Samaranese passport. On the one hand, you're part of an exclusive club. But they said the amount of time you spend having to explain, yeah, it's a place. 
because because they they regularly go through customs it's true. borders where people have literally and, never and heard that, of it. Another thing they have is banks because uh, they they play a role, uh, you know, in the so-called uh, recycling of money. There have been a lot of stories about that. So. Enrico Francescini and Anna Rosenberg, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we will hear a bit more about Melbourne Design Week, which, despite concerns about COVID-19, is still going ahead as planned. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally, Melbourne's Design Week is getting underway today. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles. Uh, Nolan, first of all, how underway is Melbourne Design Week getting? I mean, it kicked off today and it seems to have gone okay so far. So I guess they'll just be monitoring the situation there. Uh, Supposed to be running until March 22nd. The theme of how design can shape life. Uh, What in Melbourne Design Week lends actual flesh to that concept? Well, I think... There's a, they're obviously talking about a lot, and the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, is, is as you probably know, an incredible institution. Um, and there's kind of, I guess, like a high-mindedness, a, an artiness about some of the events, but I, I'm more into the more practical events. I think Melbourne is a city that has done a lot well in terms of urban planning and a lot poorly. Um, so we can kind of s- see a spread of events across the city that are quite interesting. Uh, one that you might be interested in, Andrew, is called <laughs> From Poop to Park. <laughs> this is uh, presented by Open House Melbourne, which is a very good institution, and it, it ha- does have a kind of serious topic. Uh, it's all about kind of the the work that they've done to create a great sewer system in Melbourne, which in turn has stopped people calling it Smelbourne, which people used to call it back in the day, apparently. Uh, it, it sounds like the sort of thing that, that, that snobbish Sydney-siders such as myself uh, would have said about Melbourne. The thing is that he's act- I can see the, the presentational difficulties, but it is a genuinely interesting subject. It is a, any, any such system is an engineering marvel. It is, and it's one of those things that I guess you take for granted living in a city. Here, they've they've done what they did with the High Line in New York, New York and basically turned it into a linear park. So the sewer is covered. There's a beautiful park over the top of it. You never know what was what was happening below. Um, but it's an interesting topic. I mean, in London, they're, they're bringing in this super sewer, apparently, which, uh, well, they are bringing in. I don't know when it will happen, but it, apparently it will clean up the Thames so much that you'll be able to swim in it one day. Uh, what else has been catching your eye among the Melbourne Design Week offerings, which we'll we'll talk about while it's still going, Tom okay. Sarnett? We'll go away from sewers and maybe talk about smartphones. Uh, so there's a company called Fairphone. Uh, it's a Dutch brand, and they're going to be presenting... Uh, I guess they're carbon neutral, fair trade supporting telephone. Uh, and then, I don't know, a little bit more on smartphones as well, uh, an exhibition about how we can reduce the 40 million tonnes of electronic waste. So all useful stuff, I think. Uh, that is useful if they can actually figure out a way to make it affordable, I guess. Maybe we should just spend less time on our phones. <laughs> um, is Mel- I mean, the, one of the reasons that this festival is able to go ahead uh, when so much else is being cancelled is that it's probably because it's in Melbourne to start with, right? It's less reliant on, on international designers. Um, is this something that potentially other design festivals and similar events are going to have to do of trying to find a way, at least for the foreseeable, of making a virtue or a feature of, of what's around them? I think so. I think, you know, 
the the industry needs to be supported and it's so international now anyway these italian furniture companies that we work with a lot they do have a presence in every city and i think actually it makes the these events more manageable anyway when it is a city focused event you could actually get around you can talk to people you can learn a bit but you can you're also kind of not overwhelmed by this huge offering that say milan does every year. So I think in a way, if, if, if cities and brands are smart about it, these events can still happen. Um, it's just doing it in, a, I guess, a controlled and measured manner. I mean, it, it is very early in uh, the process of whatever this is we're in the process of, but does anything yet strike you as a way that, or as a thing that might change as a consequence of this in the long term, in, in that way that people might find a better way of actually doing things? I think so. I mean, I got an interesting email from a nice uh, design brand today saying, you know, we've cancelled our event, spread the news, but not the virus. I think, you know, there, there are ways of telling stories about design, whether it's through publications, whether it's online, that kind of do lend itself to this kind of moment that we're in. And also from from speaking to brands that have, you know, spent or were spending a lot of money on exhibiting at an event like Milan Design Week and now having to kind of curtail that, they're, they're thinking a little bit more creatively about how to do things on more of a budget and I guess have a similar kind of impact. So I think then you're like design is all about problem solving anyway, isn't it? So <laughs> it's it's kind of like thinking about doing these things more creatively, thinking about spending less money and, and maximizing reach. That was Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>